0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. We're here today with Brian Feinstein. He's a Wharton professor of legal studies and business ethics, and he has a new policy brief from the Wharton Public Policy Initiative that looks at foreclosure law and how the states may be able to fill a gap in regulation at the federal level. Brian, thanks for being here.
0: Oh, thank you, Rachel.
1: So as I said, you point out that there is kind of a gap in regulation or a trend towards deregulation on the federal level. So can you talk a little bit about how we got to that point?
0: Oh, sure. So the the change really mirrored, uh, uh, the deregulatory shift, rather, mirrored the change in administration. So uh, with the Trump administration coming in, federal regulators eased up on mortgage lenders. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, that's the federal agency that's primarily responsible for enforcing consumer finance laws, they cut their enforcement activities by around 80%. Uh, In terms of monetary collections, so restitution and fines, uh, those are down by about 98% off of what they were during 2015 and 2016. Um, Now, some see that more hands-off approach as appropriate. Regulation restricts consumer choice, after all. Others are concerned that without a cop on the beat, uh, lenders will return to the same practices that helped get us into the financial crisis a decade ago. Uh, For those that are in that second camp um, uh, that recognize that the federal government's unwilling to act uh, and yet there should be some greater regulation, uh, I I would urge those folks to look to the states uh, as the federal government has. Uh, hit the brakes on regulation to look to the states instead to police mortgage markets.
1: So your brief, which is based on some research that you did, it advocates for something called state mandated judicial foreclosure. How does that work and how common is it right now?
0: So it's pretty common. 21 states and D.C. right now require that lenders who want to foreclose on a mortgage file an action in state court to do so. And what it means is that in those states, whenever there's a foreclosure action, so whenever a borrower is defaulted on his or her mortgage, uh, you have a judge that examines both the lender's adherence to the state's foreclosure procedure and the lender's behavior at the loan origination stage. The judge can look at the loan and say, okay, did the lender adhere to the Truth in Lending Act? Did they make all the required disclosures? Were there any deceptive practices? Uh, And given the borrower's likely ability to pay, are the loan terms unconscionable? And uh, only when those questions are answered to the judge's satisfaction uh, would the judge sign off on the foreclosure. In other states, in the, in the 29 other states, lenders can foreclose on the, on the mortgage without going to court. In these states, it's the borrower who has to affirmatively file suit to challenge the foreclosure. And, of course, most borrowers in, in dire straits uh, facing foreclosure don't do that. Uh, rather than the process automatically being overseen by a judge in a judicial foreclosure state.
1: So in judicial foreclosure states, what are some of the benefits and potential consequences of that process, and how? what are the impacts on lenders and borrowers?
0: So for borrowers, the primary benefit is that you get judicial supervision to make sure the lender meets all the requirements to foreclose. Uh, you also get a judge's eyes on the mortgage. Is this mortgage appropriate for the borrower? Does it meet all the legal requirements? The costs are contested. Uh, So if to the extent that judicial foreclosure slows down the foreclosure process, uh, that's going to raise the cost to lenders. Maybe lenders pass on these costs in the form of higher interest rates to borrowers, um, in which case uh, the cost to the lender is is taken on by the borrowers. Uh, Or maybe they adopt a more conservative lending posture, originating more prime loans, which are less likely to end up in foreclosure, and fewer high-risk subprime loans. Uh, so that's what my research examines, basically how do the costs and benefits of this uh, procedure play out, um, whether lenders change their behavior at the front end, their loan origination decisions, based on concerns that if the loan blows up, they're going to have to face the cost. They're going to have to face a judge uh, in a judicial foreclosure judicial state.
1: Now, how did you study this? I mean, given that I would think that real estate markets from state to state differ pretty wildly, but not only that, I mean, real estate markets within a state, from city to city, region to region, even neighborhood to neighborhood, probably differ pretty significantly.
0: Yeah, it's tough uh, because, uh, as you mentioned, you can't just compare uh, these lender decisions in a state with judicial foreclosure with decisions in other states or even within a given state because there's so many other factors that could impact mortgage markets. So what I did was I compared loan application decisions. In 14 pairs of neighboring states where both states have substantially similar relevant laws, but for the fact that one state requires judicial foreclosure and the other doesn't. So within these 14 pairs of neighboring states, I focused exclusively on areas near a state border, so metro areas that straddle a state border or other border regions. Uh, and um, as you mentioned, even within a given state, uh, mortgage markets and local economies can differ in different regions in the state. So this is a way to ensure that loans on both, side of the, both sides of the border uh, are, being, uh, are being made in, in an area with similar economic conditions and a similar mortgage market. And then I made sure that I was comparing loan applicants with similar demographic profiles looking to buy homes in similar neighborhoods within those border border regions. Uh, and finally, I focused on a subset of lenders uh, that were subject only to uniform federal regulation at the time of the study.
1: And I was also going to ask about demographics of buyers, because I feel like with um, the demographics of the borrower could really affect how they might navigate this judicial foreclosure process just because people that might have a lot of resources and information at their disposal might be better off or better able to navigate it, whereas somebody who doesn't might not be.
0: Yeah, th- that's exactly true. And I, I uh, controlled for those features and, and tried to pair similar borrowers uh, in both in states on both sides of that border. Uh, the federal government has this Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data set, which uh, examines for every mortgage application, so tens of millions of mortgage applications a year, uh, what are, what's the demographic profile of the borrowers, uh, race, uh, gender, uh, income. Uh, all of these factors uh, are identified in that data set so I could control for those. And I paid special attention to uh, race and ethnicity and gender, which are factors that uh, many scholars have found uh, really influence lenders' decisions.
1: Right. Your research shows that judicial foreclosure actually alters lender behavior in some key ways. So Could you explain what those are and also how they might line up with some regulatory goals of people who feel like this is an industry that needs to be regulated more?
0: Sure. So there are really two ways in which judicial foreclosure impacts lenders' behavior. So first, uh, lenders are less willing to originate new loans in judicial foreclosure states. So there are more borrowers that are rejected, more potential borrowers that are rejected in those states. And for the loans that lenders do originate, There are fewer high-risk subprime loans and more prime rates, uh, which are less likely to end up in foreclosure in these judicial, judicial foreclosure states. So the bottom line here is that lenders adopt a more conservative lending posture in these judicial foreclosure states. Uh, essentially, judicial foreclosure acts like a regulation. We we can kind of think of regulation as a legislature or a regulatory agency, um, issues an edict, and then uh, polices that, polices uh, regulated entities' behavior at the front end. Well, judicial foreclosure is not like that. This is back-end behavior after after the loan's gone south in some way. Um, But it has these front-end effects. It encourages lenders to modify their behavior at their decision whether or not to uh, to originate a originate loan, uh, much like a regulation would.
1: Because they know they might end up in court. Exactly. Multiple times. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, judicial foreclosure, like as I said, it does impose some costs on lenders, and in some ways it puts a lot of the onus on the lender. So do borrowers potentially feel the brunt of that?
0: So approved borrowers don't. So the folks that are being approved for loans tend to get better rates uh, in judicial foreclosure states. And that's important because uh, another study found that uh, around 40% of people who took out a subprime loan would have qualified for a prime rate. Uh, they just weren't offered it. Uh, so, um, to a large extent, in judicial foreclosure states, uh, these are folks that would have been offered a, a subprime rate, a higher risk subprime rate. But now, because the lender's thinking, "Okay, I'll have to face judicial foreclosure if the borrower doesn't perform," uh, the borrower is offered a prime rate, uh, which is more likely to um, to, to be performed on. Uh, the cost that's faced, though, uh, is those folks that uh, want a loan but can't get it. So recall that in these judicial foreclosure states, lenders uh, tend to um, approve fewer loan applications. So that means that there's a group of people uh, in these states that apply for loans, uh, and they would have received a loan in a non-judicial foreclosure state, uh, but here they're turned away.
1: So what are some of the key takeaways here for policymakers and also for state government? Well, I think
0: the the main scholarly takeaway would be that judicial foreclosure looks a lot like a regulation. As I mentioned earlier, it, it's something that uh, lenders change their behavior ex ante at the front end uh, based on the sphere of being uh, hauled into court at the back end. Uh, in terms of the takeaway for policymakers, I think state lawmakers that want to protect borrowers in their state and don't think that Washington is up for the task, up to the task rather, ought to mandate judicial foreclosure and enact other foreclosure protections because these sorts of back-end protections can alter lender behavior at the loan origination stage, just like a regulation would.
1: Now, what might be some of the potential roadblocks, though, to broader adoption of judicial foreclosure? Like, I was interested, your brief with the with the Wharton Public Policy Initiative actually includes a map of which states have it and which states don't. And I was interested to notice that... Um, It seems like the states that have it right now, that they're not necessarily divided on political ideological lines. Like, for example, a lot of states in the Northeast that trend blue have it, but also Kentucky does, which tends to trend red. So, But going forward, do you feel like there might be some ideological or like red state, blue state things that could hinder broader adoption? Well, you're right
0: that uh – Currently, uh, there's not really uh, any clear trend in what states have it and what don't. So a business uh, school professor at at, uh, Wisconsin, Andra Ghent, uh, has some research looking into the history of these laws, and she basically found that uh, in many cases, uh, states uh, very early in statehood or even when they were colonies or territories uh, would uh, either choose judicial foreclosure or non-judicial foreclosure and stick with that choice. Uh, In fact, in the past 80 years, Only eight states have substantially changed their foreclosure procedure, and a lot of times she found that when a state originally uh, made this decision, it was really for idiosyncratic reasons. So a a particular judge uh, just favored a particular procedure, uh, and that became precedent, and then eventually the state legislature codified that precedent, and things continued on as they were. Uh, So, um, I suppose the biggest roadblock, or or at least a significant roadblock here, is just status quo bias, uh, that these laws don't tend to change. Um, In terms of other roadblocks, uh, I I probably ought to mention um, the banks don't want it. Uh, So, this uh, borrower protections uh, are bad for their bottom line, uh, and that's why uh, lenders have been successful at the federal level uh, in rolling back some regulations and reducing um, enforcement. A final uh, roadblock is more uh, philosophical, Uh, just the idea of government enacting measures that are designed to limit people's financial choices. So it's preventing some people from getting subprime loans that they otherwise would have been approved for. Uh, That gives some people pause. Uh, There's a deep strand of libertarian and utilitarian thought uh, arguing against these sorts of measures. I I take that critique seriously. my response is that uh, when someone takes out a high-risk loan uh, and then defaults on it, it doesn't just affect them. There's a study showing here in Philadelphia when a residential property is abandoned, uh, it reduces the land value of surrounding property by thousands of dollars. Uh, and then, as we learned uh, in the Great Recession, uh, sometimes these decisions in the aggregate uh, can harm not only the len- not only the borrower, rather, uh, but can harm uh, in some uh, instances the world economy uh, writ large. Uh, So there are those significant roadblocks, uh, status quo bias, uh, the interest of banks, uh, and this notion of limiting consumer choice. Um, But I think policymakers interested in regulation uh, um, ought to look at those roadblocks as being possible to overcome.
1: Now, another thing that I noticed about that map, which you can see if you check out the full brief on the Wharton Public Policy Initiative website, is that there are some states that do not have this that were really hard hit in the Great Recession by the subprime crisis. So like California, Nevada, Arizona. But on the other hand, Florida does have this and they were also really hard hit. Do you see judicial foreclosure or states having it or not having an impact during the Great Recession? And does that argue for or against broader adoption of it? It's an
0: interesting question. Um, I'm hesitant to offer a, a thought either way because there's so many factors uh, in these states. And, and the reason I was so careful with this border design is because there's so much else going on uh, in, say, Florida or Nevada uh, that can affect uh, things like foreclosure rates, Um who knows, had Florida not had judicial foreclosure, uh, who knows uh, how much worse uh, their foreclosure crisis would have been.
1: And what's next for this research?
0: So uh, with a co-author, Manisha Paddy at um, University of California, Berkeley's law school, uh, we're looking at the role that attorney generals play in in policing uh, uh, mortgage finance. So it's been 10 years since Dodd-Frank was enacted. Uh, That law uh, really Granted an unusual amount of power to state attorneys general to enforce both state and federal uh, mortgage finance regulation. At the time that Dodd Frank was enacted, the Chamber of Commerce and the American Bankers Association and other industry groups uh, warned that empowering state attorneys general in this way would lead to inconsistent enforcement. So you have 50 state attorneys general uh, enforcing their own interpretation of federal law. Uh, When you have a switch between a Republican or a Democrat in a given state uh, as attorney general, you could see uh, a wild swing in enforcement priorities, Um, and, and therefore they oppose that. Well, um, Manisha Patti and I uh, take a step back looking at this. Okay, it's been 10 years since Dodd-Frank was enacted. Do we see uh, that sort of uh, inconsistency and these sorts of fluctuations? Uh, And the answer is no. Uh, So when um, a state attorney's general office changes from Democratic to Republican control uh, or vice versa, we see mortgage markets really uh, displaying a remarkable degree of stability. Uh, so um, we think that uh, attorneys general uh, enforcing state and, and federal uh, mortgage finance regulation, um, uh, at, at least that critique of it, uh, doesn't have a lot of doesn't hold a lot of water.
1: Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts, articles, and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts on Apple's podcasting app or your other favorite podcasting app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a comment or a review. It really does help like-minded folks to find the show. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.